Amen. Amen. So um, I am going to start with a verse, um, and it comes from Luke chapter 7, verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money holder had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Dear Lord, I thank you, God, for just allowing me to stand before your people. God, I know that there is an absolute word that you want to minister to them. And so, God, I humble myself. I give to you my mind. I give you my mouth. I give you my heart. I give you, dear Heavenly Father, all of me, dear God. Use me the way that you want to use me. Let no idle word come from my mouth, but only a word that is ordained by you. These are your sons and these are your daughters. And so I will tread carefully to speak only what you want me to speak to them. God, open their hearts, their minds to receive what you have prepared. It is in your son Jesus' name that I do pray. Amen. Amen. So, still to this day, and when my kids were younger, um, when we go to any shopping center, I make sure that I hold their hands when we go into a parking lot. So I make sure even, not so much with Safari now because he's a little older, and the whole idea is that whoever is in the parking lot might not see you, but they'll see mommy. So I need you to hold my hand because when they're reversing, they might not see you, but if you have my hand, you're with me, they'll see mommy right? And so that is our rule. When we go into a parking lot, when we get out the car, you have to grab my hand. You have to hold my hand. And the rule is there because I, as their mom, want to protect them. The rule is there because ultimately I love them. Amen? So I started thinking about that and I started saying, well, what would it look like if holding my hand was now an example to everybody around me of how much I love my kids? That no longer was it just about the protection, but it was about, to, it was about showing other people that I love my kids. And I said, well, then what that would look like is when we got out of church, when we got out, came to church and we got out of the van, I would hold their hand. But I wouldn't hold their hand necessarily to protect them. I would hold their hand because I want everybody to see that I'm a good mom. So we will hold hands walking into church. I will make sure that we hold hands Every time, look, whenever you see mommy, you come and hold your hand because I need this to be an example to everybody that I'm a good mommy. And in fact, even as you get older, I still want you to hold my hand.
because again, it's not about necessarily protecting you at this point, but it's about making sure that when they see Africa Edwards, they will see me holding my 16-year-old son's hand, and they will know that I love my son, that I'm a good mother because good mothers hold their children's hands. And then if I take it a step further, and I start to notice, hmm, sister so-and-so doesn't hold her son's hand. Hmm. Ah, that baby got scabs on his knees. You know why? Because if you were like me, your baby wouldn't have scabs on their knees because it's hard to fall when you hold in mommy's hand. So your baby, oh yeah, I'm going to help you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray, Lord, help that mother see what I know is true. That the only way to truly love your children is to hold their hand. But then not only did I take it because now I'm looking at people now, I'm sharing that with other hand holders. And I look for other people that hold their children's hand. And then we gather together and we be like, okay, we're so good. Girl, look at your baby's knees. I don't see not one scab. Oh, well, look at my, my baby's knees. My baby's knees don't have any scab. That's because we're hand holders. That's because we're hand holders and we hold, other, we hold our children's head. Now, okay, I will admit that one time I let Yimmy go to sister so-and-so's house. Now, she's not much of a hand holder. And when she was over at her house, Yimmy's knees got scarred up. But that scar wasn't because it was for me. It was because that sister so-and-so was not a hand holder. So I then decide I'm going to do an intervention. And as people come into the church, I'm going to be looking for people who are not holding hands with their children. And I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to start a small group. But in that small group, it's only going to be for the non-hand holders. Because to truly be a good mother, and God wants me to be a good mother, that's what the Lord wants me to do. And the only way that you can prove that you are a good mother is that if you hold hands. So come on, come to this small group. And we're going to have me and my best, my BFF, because we're both hand holders, we're going to do an intervention for you. And we're going to tell you the ways in which you should hold your child's hand so that their knees don't get scabbed up. Because scabby knees means that you're not a good mother. How ridiculous does that sound? How ridiculous does that sound? That in order for you to be the mom that God wants you to be to your children, you have to hold their hand. And their knees can't be scabbed up. Never, ne nevertheless, that you got them a place to live, 
and you got clothes on their back and they're not hungry and they're pretty healthy and you take them to doctor's appointments, but you can do all of that. But if your child got scabby knees, mm, Pastor has been in this vein of talking about Pharisees. And even though that example was exaggerated, the truth is that is a very real attitude in the church. And it is an attitude of legalism. What Pastor has been up here doing for the last few weeks is that he has been exposing the plan of the enemy. He's been exposing tactics of how the enemy is going to try, not might, but will try to invade, destroy, and divide what God has appointed. So even though it might not be scabby knees, it's easily something else. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you probably can think back to that one thing that you didn't do right, that you were always trying to get because somebody told you in order to be a real Christian, you had to do this. You couldn't do that. You had to look like this. You had to dress like that. You had to be here at this appointed time every time. Because if you are a real Christian, then your child's knees would not be scabby. So I want to talk a little bit about legalism. Legalism exists in the church and it's really a tool to administer, that administers spiritual abuse. So what I want to do first before I tell you what legalism is, I want to tell you what it is not. So legalism is not establishing rules and regulations. That's not legalism because every organization including churches, schools, businesses, and even homes, have rules and regulations. I'm sure all of you have rules in your home, things that people can and cannot do. So legalism is not rules. You should have rules. You should have things in order. God is a God of decency and order, so you should have those things. And... 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 33, Paul actually instructs the church in Corinth regarding how they should conduct regulations, I mean, regular meetings, religious meetings. So Paul actually gives them instructions on how to, this is how your meeting should flow. Don't have everybody talking over everybody. Let one person prophesy at a time. There should be order. That's not legalism. That's order. And God is okay with order. Legalism is not submitting to authority. You should submit to authority. God established authority figures in the church, home, and government for our good. 
These individuals are to meet the needs of those under their authority and provide them with leadership, guidance, protection, and accountability. In Hebrews 13 and 17, it states, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So you should submit to authority. You should. Oh, they, they want me to do this, and they want me to do all of that. And I know First Lady said I should have a budget, and I know she said I need to be on time, but she don't understand when I get up in the morning and my kids don't be acting right. And look, I'm just good that I made it. Look, I'm talking to somebody. Look, I'm talking to myself because that was me. Trust you me, First Lady has gotten on to me many a time for not being on time. But because she is an authoritative figure in my life, God honors the fact that I honor her and I submit to her. So submitting to authority, they so legalistic over there. That's not being legalistic. That's being in order when you do submit to authority. So I'm going to show you what legalism is, but that ain't it. All right? Legalism is not having personal standards for Christian living. Within the boundaries of biblical absolutes, God gives us the responsibility. He gives us what? The responsibility to choose how we will live our Christian lives. The choices we make throughout the day as to how we will present ourselves to others and how we will conduct ourselves around others reflect our standards. So if how I act reflects a standard of how I live, then and I'm saying that, a Christ, that I'm a Christian, then the standard that I'm living by should be God's standard, right? So living your life in order and being aware of how you act, being aware of how you interact with people, being the way, aware of how you handle your affairs, that's not being legalistic. It's not being legalistic saying that, you know what, you should tithe. Your money does matter to God. All they want is my money. They're so legalistic over there. You don't tithe. No. It's good. It's good. The way that you handle your affairs. I should not be looking at any other man than Mate Edwards, my chocolate chocolate. I shouldn't be. That's not legalistic. That's good. That's in order with God's standard. So that's what legal, leg, that's legalistic. Being legalistic is not that. So now that I've kind of given you what it's not, let me tell you what it is. Legalism is a system of living by the law in order to make spiritual progress and to earn God's blessing. 
I'll repeat, legalism is a system of living by the law in order to make spiritual progress and to earn God's blessing. So I do this to get that. I act this way so that I can receive you, somebody acting another way towards me. I'm going to fast this many days. I'm going to pray this much because if I do this, then God, you are going to do this. It's not because I have a heart for God. It's not because, God, my heart is so tender towards you that I just, I can't get up from praying. The heart position is, God, I'm going to stay down here because I said I was, and if I do this this many times, then, bam, I should get this. That's legalism. Legalism is a strict adherence to a code of do's and don'ts as a means of earning the approval of God. If I do this and if I don't do that, then God will approve of me. If you can do or don't things, and that'll get God's approval, what was the need for Jesus going to the cross? But legalism creeps into the church because we have do's and don'ts that we think people should do and don't do. And we put people in a heaven or hell that we don't even, that's not even ours to put them in. Legalism is a misuse of the law, resulting in a wrong way of trying to appear right. So it's taking the Ten Commandments and beating somebody over the head with it until they act right. The law was an expression of God's heart towards his people. The law gives us boundaries, but it also creates freedom. My husband and I are working on um, purchasing a new home. That's really what we want. We're not in a rush. But what we've done is we've created a budget for ourselves. We've created parameters. So that means we can't go out to eat. We can't do certain things. But the budget is not there to hurt us, it's to help us. Because if we don't know where our money's going, then we won't be able to save the money. And I want a new kitchen. I want a new kitchen, I do. I want a white kitchen with white cabinets. Look, I want a bonus room. I want a sheet. I want a girl's room with no TV in it that nobody wants to go in but mommy. That's what I want. Amen. So because, because we want that, 
And it's a good thing to desire. A budget helps us, even though it restricts us. Ultimately, it is going to help us get what we want. That's what the law does. If you think about it, if you really, the, just, just in the Ten Commandments, and Jesus, I'm going to go into Jesus' takes on the law, but if you just think about it, if we really were able to keep the Ten Commandments, how much easier would our lives be? If you think about the stuff that tripped you up, the stuff that you got caught up in, and you compare that to the Ten Commandments that God gave us, if I would have done what, this, what those commandments said, man, there were some things, there were some issues I might have never even faced in my life. So God's commandments are not to condemn. They're really to protect. They're really to keep you in line so that you can live the life. But as we see in the Old Testament, Apart from God, you cannot keep the Ten Commandments. And if you really read, there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. So just those 10 might be a little hard, but now you're looking at 613. There were 613 commandments that were given to the children of Israel. And you see God give them, because every time they messed up, he was like, okay, let me help you. This is what you should have done. I'm going to give you another commandment. You don't know what to do with that? Okay, you messed up. I'm going to give you another commandment. 613. But God knew that it was impossible, even for the tent, it's impossible to do it apart from him. So if we look, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 64 and 6. Isaiah says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So Isaiah said that we're all filthy rags. Philippians, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians 3, 4 through 6, Paul says, though I myself... <clears throat> Have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So, okay, so this is what Paul is saying. Paul is getting ready to lay out his resume. He's like, if anybody should be confident in their pedigree, it is me. So Paul's about to read off his resume. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, Paul says, look, I was a Pharisee. And if you want to talk about zeal, meaning I really took my job 
seriously? I was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, well, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of that surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul says, my righteousness is worth nothing. Yes, I was a Pharisee. I was studied. I knew the law. But it's worth nothing. Because with all my understanding, with all of my knowledge, with all of my wisdom, I still fall short. Pastor said that God told him that we are going to be a prototype. We're going to be a prototype. That means that other churches, other brothers and sisters, people that are out there trying to reach the lost, that they're going to look at EMCC and they're going to want to copy what we do. Our media team is on point. When they come and they see what we're doing, I'm sure Tyrell will have all kinds of things that he can share with them. Sister Kanisha is revamping our children's ministry. I'm sure she's going to have something that, that they can share, that she can share with them. When we're talking about our deacons and our ushers, I'm sure they can talk to Sister Fraxine and she can tell them how our systems work. When it comes to planning events, I'm sure that they can talk to me or somebody else and I can say, well, look, this is what we do. This is how we do it. But if our systems are all in place, but our heart is not right, then we're not worth copying. There are going to be people who are going to come in here that are going to challenge your thought life. They're going to challenge, man, okay, God, I don't know about her. They're not going to look like it's going to be uncomfortable. But we're not babies anymore. We're not babies anymore. We are supposed to be able to let those people come in in all of their mess and love on them. If God is calling us to that level, then along with nipping out gossip, we have to nip out legalism. We have to. People are going to come here. I know how I came here. I don't even have to talk about nobody else. I was so lonely. I was so lonely when I came here. Had a whole bunch of people around me and nobody knew me. 
And I wasn't even necessarily looking for friends. I, first lady made me stick, stay around after church because I would go hop in that car as soon as I could. I'll be over there been trying to t- put Safari in his car seat, first lady come and find me. You want, you want some nachos? You ain't even eat. <laughs> Wouldn't she? She would not let you get away. Look. I miss those hot dogs and nachos. Look, look, that way, we, we, we post-COVID now. We might need to rethink that. We post-COVID. I'm tired of having to find some lunch for these kids to eat after church. <laughs> but I know how I came. I know how I came when I came to this church. Man, I was looking. I was so empty. I knew of God but didn't know him. And you can look at me on the outside and be like, oh, well, she's all right. I was ready to walk away from my marriage. I was ready to give up. And had somebody left me alone, I might have. Had First Lady left me alone and just let me come to church and sit down and leave, I might have. One of the beautiful things that I love about Jesus is that he was always moved with compassion. He saw people before he saw their circumstances. And that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to see people before we see the circumstance. Because Jesus looked past the circumstance. He looked past where they were and he saw them. You can't look at people the way Jesus did and still be legalistic. It's impossible. Jesus said, come as you are. And I'm going to love on you. I know what they call you out there. I know what you're walking away from. I know. I know you stink. I know you're dirty. But I see you. I see past it. God, give us eyes that have compassion like yours. Because the world is hurting. It is broken. I scroll through Facebook, and I'm like, my God, there are so many people. Lord, let me see beyond the smile. Let me see beyond the prepared selfie. Let me read in between the lines. Give me discernment. Because there's a people out there that need Jesus. And we are a church of Jesus followers. We are glory carriers. When somebody walks through those doors, they should feel the love of God. And God is probably going to challenge you in some areas to talk to people that you wouldn't necessarily talk to. But if we are to be a prototype, then the first thing that we lead with and the last thing that people should feel is the love of God. 
we're unable to be righteous on our own. I was reading in Genesis about Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So then after that, God makes Eve. So Eve didn't hear the command. Not at least that time because she wasn't even around. So Eve didn't hear the command. Adam should have told her the command. I'm assuming that she knew because she knew when the serpent came that she wasn't supposed to eat it. So she knew, she knew better. She knew better, but look, she still ate, she ate the fruit, gave it to Adam, he ate it. So the fall happens. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the loincloths are Adam and Eve's attempt to cover themselves. They made from fig leaves. So you see God come along. And he's like, y'all don't even know. I, look, first of all, you can't hide from me. Like, where I created the whole thing and you, who you hiding from? Like, really, who are you hiding from? Then on top of that, y'all really got some fig leaves to cover yourselves. You really got some fig leaves. So God actually, and I think this is the compassionate part that I love about God. God is not just graceful in the New Testament. He's not just compassionate in the New Testament. He's compassionate from beginning to end. So he takes, you know, he kills an animal and slaughters an animal, and he covers them properly. And I think that sometimes, you know, when we try to do it ourselves, we're around here with fig leaves. trying to cover ourselves, trying to make ourselves look decent. But the thing is, you can't do it. Them fig leaves will never worry. Something going to come out that shouldn't be showing with some fig leaves. God is the only one that can properly cover you. And in his compassion and love for Adam and Eve, he kicked them out of the garden. That might not sound compassionate, but it was because he knew that they were in a fallen state. And he said, look, before you're tempted to eat of the tree of life, and you're in this state forever, because I love you too much to leave you like this, I'm going to kick you out. But I'm going to have a plan of redemption for you. And so you look through the Old Testament and throughout the Old Testament, you see God's love for his people, his compassion for his people, that no matter how much they fall, no matter how far away they go, he always comes back to restore them. 
My children and I are studying, um, we're studying Judges last week. And if you get bored with the Bible, you're not reading the right Bible. You're not reading it correctly because it is some good stuff in the Bible. I mean, I'm just talking about even for entertainment value. Like, it is some stuff that goes down in the Bible. It's popping. It really is. It really is. It is. So we're going through Judges, and my kids are like, oh! You know, like, they, we, we talked about Deborah. If you don't know the story about Deborah, read it. It's in Judges. It's in Judges. But, you know, so we're going through. But you see this cycle that happens with the children of Israel. They, okay, God, you're my God. Uh, I see something over there. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to just check it out. I mean, yeah, you're still my God, but I'm going to check it out over here. They fall. God comes and redeems them. And he does it again and again and again throughout. That, like, that literally is the whole story. And I think the problem that sometimes we have is that you're trying, we, we get the laws without knowing the narrative. And the Bible is a narrative. It's a story. So when the laws are given, it's given within a narrative. It's given within a story. So you have to know the story in order to understand where the laws fall. But if you take just the laws out, first of all, most of them, especially when you get to the 613 of them, they really don't make a lot of sense for us now unless you place them back in the narrative. There is a law that says do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. That is a commandment. That means absolutely nothing to us today. I mean, and if it does, you can talk to me after because I would like to know. But the purpose for that law was because they were living in Canaan and there were other people groups that worshiped other gods that boiled baby goats in their mother's milk. But if you don't know the entire narrative, then you'll be like, oh, that doesn't even make sense. What God is saying is, I don't want you to look like them. When they see you worship, your worship should look different than anything around you. So the purpose of the laws is within the narrative of the, of the people of Israel. And the purpose of the law is to show you that you cannot do any of this without me. It is impossible for you to be righteous, to uphold these laws without me. That's why you need Jesus. And the law points to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. But you needed a little history behind you to prove that you can't do this on your own. So you have to know the history in order to understand that when we get to the New Testament, these are people with no land. They're waiting on a promise for God. And all they know is the Old Testament. 
they know the Hebrew Bible. Now, the New Testament is not written. They're literally writing it as they walk. And the problem that we have to know is that as we come, as people are coming into our church, as people are coming, that we don't hold them to a standard that we don't keep ourselves. We don't expect them to do stuff that you know. That's like a parent, and I'm guilty. I'm guilty because I expect my children to act at 11s, 8, and 7 in a way that I know I didn't act. I expect them to do things that at their age I know I did not do. Trying to make them better. Or sometimes I just don't feel like doing it myself. <laughs> but we have to be careful. The law was never intended to, lead, to leave God's people discouraged and in despair, but it was to first show them that they were sinners and then lead them to a Savior. And that was the purpose. So we find ourselves now in the New Testament, and we have the Pharisees who are keeping in line with the law. And so Jesus encounters these Pharisees. One time he encounters them, and it's uh, in Mark 5. It's recorded in Mark 5, excuse me, Mark 2, 5 through 12. And this is when he heals the paralyzed man. Y'all remember that story where the paralyzed man, um, his friends, he has some really good friends. Y'all need friends like the paralyzed man. But they broke through the roof and they lowered him down. So the Pharisees are watching that, and this is how dope Jesus is, because they ain't even say nothing. They just thought it. They just thought it. And they thought, oh, here we go. In verse 8, and immediately Jesus, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit what they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? So the Pharisees are trying Jesus. Then we see in Mark 2 and 16 through 17, and they wanted to know, why was Jesus eating with tax collectors? Because tax collectors, Jewish people did not fool with tax collectors. They didn't. Now, they were Jewish, but they were betrayers. They betrayed because they worked for Rome. So the Pharisees are looking like, why are you, Jesus, why are you over there talking to those people? They don't even like us. And you over there talking to them. Why are you over there at her house? She don't even like us. You know her family, and I don't like your, your family. They don't like us. I think we need to leave sometimes us alone. Making decisions based on us and not you. But Jesus 
says to them again. He says of the tax collectors, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And the truth is, none of us are righteous, but if you think you are, that means Jesus can't even get to you. But those who know that they need a Savior. So Jesus is talking to his disciples, and this is what he says about the Pharisees. And this is the danger that we can run into if we allow legalism to stay in our thoughts, if we allow that to be the filter in how we view people. And this is from Matthew 23, 1 through 4. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So he said that the Pharisees, what they do is that what they're saying is right. It is the law. But they take the law and all of the, the demands of it. They don't do any of it themselves. They lay it on the people on their shoulders, which is a burden too heavy. And I don't know if any of you have ever been in, in a situation where somebody has laid something on you, has set an expectation that is so unrealistic, and no matter what you do, it's never satisfied. No matter how hard you work, no matter the, 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 the path that you walk is so narrow, it is never enough. You never get there. Somebody's laid something on you that they themselves don't even carry, can't carry. That's legalism. That's legalism. It took somebody... I'll say me. It took me over 40 years of my life to really come to a place where I really, 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 really believe that God loves me. I had to fight through all kinds of stuff. And then you have someone that comes in, they just started this journey, and you're like, I'm always encouraging you. You should know by now that God loves you. You up here for prayer again? You ain't get delivered the first time? Too heavy. Too heavy. Jesus said that my burden is easy. My yoke is light. Like, it's not heavy but we place it on the shoulders. And as people are coming, we cannot. They're coming for an escape from the world because the world has already told them you have to look like this. 
you have to have this. This is what success looks like. Oh, your mom and daddy, they come from that neighborhood. Well, then you'll never be this. That happened to you, and because that happened to you, you can never get that. So they're coming from a world that's telling them that. And they're coming into a, a body of people that shouldn't put more on them to get out of it. Thank you, Father. Jesus also says of the Pharisees, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut. Let me tell you what Jesus said. He said, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. I called pastor because I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I didn't. I was like, pastor, you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to. I know the Lord then gave you a word. Pastor told me just, you know, step away from it. It'll come. So then I saw him. Just happened to bump into him at a, at a birthday party. And I was like, all right, now, now you got to give me something now. I'm talking about like this is yesterday. So I'm like, you got to give me something now. Pastor was like, you grown. <laughs> Told me I was grown. <laughs> so that's what I'm telling y'all. You're grown. It's a tragedy what is happening that people are coming seeking and literally what they're seeking we are slamming the door to heaven in their faces not allowing access but that won't be here that won't be in this house because we're grown we're going to eat our, our big kid food we're going to let this digest And we're not going to hold people to a standard that God doesn't even hold them to. On Friday of this week, this coming week, it will be two years since my brother passed away. And if I had to title this message, it would be, ouch. Because I was the Pharisee. I was the one that, legal, that was legalistic. You put my stuff on paper, I did what you were supposed to do. I went to school, I went to church, I, you know, received Jesus in my heart. You put it on paper. My brother was the one that needed help, not me. So I started to, God really started to show me myself. 
at my brother's funeral, he had all kind of people come up and tell stories about him. How he gave them food to eat, how he visited them in jail. When they got out of jail, he helped them find a place to stay. How he would sit and talk to them about the word of God. And I said, I'm the Pharisee in this situation. And I started to think about that thing. And I said, you know what? I missed so much time with him because I wanted to correct his situation that I did not see him. And God forgives and God heals. So it's not even condemnation. But what it is, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call that we have to forgive now. We have to be able to look at people and see what Jesus sees. When their decisions don't look like our life decisions, we still have to see what Jesus sees. There's a story. A Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus to come and speak. I mean, to come and have dinner. And while they're having dinners, a woman came. And theologians believe that this was a woman who was a trafficked woman. Now, anything that you know about that time, you don't become that kind of woman by choice. Some things in life had to go wrong. Some things in life didn't line up the way that she probably planned. And she ended up in a position and probably felt that that was all she could be. So while Jesus is at this dinner, at this house, this woman doesn't care about whoever is around her. She doesn't care about what people think. So all she knows is she has to get to Jesus. So she takes the alabaster box. And the alabaster box, what it is is that because of the kind of stuff that she did, it helped hide the scent of where she had been. She took that thing that was trying to cover what she had done, and she took it and she broke it on Jesus' feet. And she cries, and she washes his feet with her hair, with her, with, with her tears and dries them with her hair. And the Pharisee sees the woman and he thinks, Jesus doesn't need, I bet you now, is he supposed to be a prophet? If he knew who she was, only if he knew. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you see, that's when he gives that, um, that story that I began with. Where the debt is forgiven. 
And who would be great? Who would be more grateful for that debt being forgiven? So he's talking to Simon, who's the Pharisee, and he's telling him, and you know, Simon is like, yeah, it's the one who was forgiven the most. He said, you spoke rightly. Then, this is what I love. This is why you have to read, read the Bible, like let it take you there. Like, so literally, she is at his feet, and Jesus' back is to her. And he's talking to Simon. He continues to talk to Simon, but then he takes his gaze off of the Pharisee and he puts it on her. And as he's correcting Simon, he's seeing her. And he, and he says, when I came to your house, as he's looking at her and all what she's doing, he's talking to Simon. He's saying, Simon, when I came to your house, you didn't even offer me the decent courtesy of giving me somewhere to wash my feet. But she hasn't stopped washing my feet. He said, you didn't even greet me with a kiss that's customary. It's just common courtesy. You didn't even greet me. And he's saying this while he's looking at her. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. And as he looks at her, I wonder if that's the first time that somebody saw her. That in spite of what she had been through, despite of what people says that she is, God honors her. And he says, you are worth it. I know what the Pharisee says about you. And I'm correcting him, but I'm looking at you. And your heart is what I want. Because you believe that I can make a difference. Because you believe that in me, you're going to be made whole. So I know what he said. But I see you. I know what he said, but I see you. People are coming in here. They're going to be unseen. We have to see them. And their righteousness does not come because of what they've done. It's because of what he's done. So my prayer today is for those who have tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and tried and tried, but you can never get there. That's because you weren't supposed to get there by yourself. 
that there's a God that sees, that he is still Elroy, that he sees you. And he doesn't care what you smell like. He doesn't care what dirt is on you. He came for you because he sees you and not your circumstance. And if there's somebody here that wants to know a love like that, that desires to know a love like that, it's available to you today. has hid eternity in our hearts. And there is a void that can only be filled by an internal God. You can fill that voided place today. And for somebody else who might have been like me, who made themselves the standard to judge everybody else by. God has a place for Pharisees too. Ask Paul. We are going to be a church of healed people. We are going to be a hospital that allows people to come and walk through their therapy. That will love on people. That will see them the way that God sees them. 